Hello, Sex Appeal listeners. This is Kit Elliott, one of your hosts for this show. After an extended hiatus, Katie and I have reassessed our stance on the true crime genre as entertainment and the way it affects the real-world victims involved in these cases. While this show has always striven to highlight injustices and prejudice in our society and legal system over anything else, we still want to make some changes to assure absolutely no harm comes from the stories we tell here. So, now, Sex Appeal Women on Trial will focus solely on historic true crime cases. That is, trials that took place a minimum of 150 years ago. All of our episodes already posted over the years that discuss cases that do not meet this new criteria have been removed, which is the main reason for this announcement. Because several episodes were deleted in their entirety, some remaining episodes may contain references to something said in one of them. We apologize for any confusion or continuity problems this creates. We hope you can understand the reasoning behind this decision. Thank you for listening and enjoy the episode. Please be advised that this episode contains details and discussion of violence and gore. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Sex Appeal Women on Trial. I'm Kit. And I'm Katie. Thank you to everyone who's tuning into this episode. It means you survived our first two. Uh, If you haven't already, please subscribe to us on your listening platform of choice. Right now, your options are iTunes and SoundCloud, but we're working on getting on Spotify and maybe a few others soon. So let's talk about something nice. I'm back. (laughs) Which is always nice. Yeah. Kidding, oh. kidding, oh, wow. kidding. You know what? Let's just stop this podcast right now. All okay. right. Thank you so much for listening. Um, This is our finale episode. Bye, guys. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> anyway, I'm back from Ireland and England, and it was a lot of fun. I was sick, and I'm still a little sick, but that's okay. You I, lived. I lived. I am here in good old America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in the year of our Lord, 2019. <laughs> I, however, have really done nothing. Um, I've been here. Good thing, um, I guess my good thing is I've had plenty of quality time with my pets. There you which go. is always the best. I miss Sandy so much. <laughs> we um, picked her up from my aunt's house and she was so happy. It was great. I almost cried because I miss her. <laughs> She's my baby. <laughs> Now, Katie has told me a little bit about the case she's talking about today, and I'm nervous. Alright, listen, my dudes. This is a super interesting story. I'm going to repeat our content warning that the violence gets intense. In this episode, we will be talking about Kate Webster and the Richmond murder. We do not condone crime here on Sex Appeal. But gosh darn, don't we love a good story. Let's get started. On March 5th, 1879, a wooden box was found washed up on the riverbank below Barnes Bridge in Richmond, England. Local man Henry Wheatley saw the box and wanted to see the contents inside of it. When he opened it, he was shocked to see a mass of flesh and portions of a human body. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to be my interjection throughout this episode. I'm just going to, ew, Ew. (laughs) continue from your mass of flesh. (laughs) That's so dramatic. (laughs) There was a cut piece of torso, two legs, but only one severed foot from an unidentified woman. 
Little did he know that he had stumbled upon the results of one of the most gruesome and controversial crimes in the late 19th century Britain. So, Kit, what do you know about this crime? Like I said, you've only told me about how uh, nasty this case is, so I don't know the details. I tried looking up some kind of documentary or anything like that about it, and I actually didn't find much. I found a couple podcast episodes about it, but I did not listen to them. Don't worry. Perfect, because that means I can gross you out myself. Oh, thanks. I hate it. Kate Webster was born as Kate Lawler in Killeen County, Wexford, Ireland around 1849. The details of her early life are unknown, but she claimed to have married a sea captain named Webster, who she had four children with. According to her account, her husband and all her children died, though there is no way of actually verifying if they existed in the first place. Sounds fake, but okay. Now, Webster had a criminal record. Ooh, daddy. (laughs) (laughs) Ignore me. No, it's perfect. All right. She was first imprisoned for larceny when she was only 15 years old. What were you doing when you were 15 years old? Ooh, listening to angsty music. (laughs) I was watching anime. I had an anime phase. We are all ashamed of her. I was wearing too much eyeliner. I had, I wasn't allowed to wear makeup. I had, remember Invader Zim? Yeah. Um, Oh, you were one uh, of those kids. I couldn't afford Hot Topic, but (laughs) when I did save my money, it was for Hot Topic. Oof, we all. Dark time. We all have Uh, our dark times. At least we weren't committing larceny. That's true. Once she was free, she left Ireland and moved to England in 1867. From 1868 to 1872, she was sentenced to four years of penal labor in Liverpool for another count of larceny. Because we don't learn from our mistakes here. I'm not done, my dude. Oh, no. Two years later, in April 1874, she gave birth to her son, John Webster. The identity of the father is unknown since Webster was a prostitute at the time. She did believe, however, that her son's father was a man named Strong, and we'll talk about him later. Can't wait. In May 1875, she was convicted of 36 charges of larceny. (laughs) What are you doing? And was sentenced to 18 months in prison. Once released, she was arrested for another account of larceny and was sentenced to a year imprisonment in February of 1877. She got out and went back in. During this time, her son lived with a friend who, through connections, was able to get Webster a job as maid. Friendship goals? I mean, yeah. <laughs> Watches your son. That is a ride or die friendship. For 36 charges of larceny and uh, gets you a job. <laughs> 36 plus. <laughs> yeah, more than 36. During the Victorian era, about 40% of the female labor force was employed as servants. Servants and employers lived and worked together within the household. On January 29th, 1879, Webster became the maid for Julia Martha Thomas at number two Mayford Cottages in the town of Richmond. Mrs. Thomas was a small, 54-year-old woman. She was a widowed, retired schoolteacher who was said to be kind and a loved member of her church. After the death of her second husband in 1873, she lived alone. The house was a two-story townhouse made of gray stone surrounded by lovely gardens. Throughout Webster's short employment, Webster and Mrs. Thomas had a mutual dislike towards each other. Mrs. Thomas saw Webster as a horrible employee who spent more time at local pubs than at work, and Webster said that Mrs. Thomas was overbearing and never really satisfied with Webster's cleaning. Would you like to read this quote by Webster? Yep. Webster said, At first I thought her a nice old lady, 
but I found her very trying, and she used to do many things to annoy me during my work. When I'd finished my work in my rooms, she used to go over it again after me and point out places where she said I did not clean, showing evidence of a nasty spirit towards me. On February 28th, one month after hiring Webster, Mrs. Thomas had enough and wanted to kick Webster out of her house. Webster somehow persuaded Mrs. Thomas to let her stay in the house for three more days while she looked for a new job and find somewhere else to live. On March 2nd, Webster was still living with Mrs. Thomas and had not found another job. According to the members of Mrs. Thomas' church, she and Webster had a heated argument before she left for a Sunday service. Mrs. Thomas told her friends that once she returned home from church, she was going to kick Webster out for good. And she did, and they lived happily ever after, full lives with no murder. Alright, play the theme song, roll credits, thank you so much for listening! (laughs) (laughs) No... According to Webster's account, she was in a room near the staircase when Mrs. Thomas stormed into the house. The two women argued at the top of the stairs, and in the heat of the moment, she accidentally pushed Mrs. Thomas down the stairs. Yeah, you know, accidentally pushed her. Mrs. Thomas survived the fall but had severe injuries. Webster's rage transferred into panic, but instead of getting help, you know, like any rational human being would do in this situation... Webster proceeded to strangle Mrs. Thomas to stop her from screaming and alerting the neighbors. Oh no, my girl, what are you doing? Oh, it gets worse. No. Kate strangled Mrs. Thomas as she fought for her life. However, Mrs. Thomas was not strong enough and died at the bottom of her staircase. Fearing that she would be caught and charged with murder, Webster needed to get rid of the body. But the body would be too big and obvious to dispose of as is. So, content warning, just saying. She took Mrs. Thomas's body to the kitchen, took a razor, and decapitated her employer. She then used a meat saw and a carving knife to cut up the rest of the body. She even opened up Mrs. Thomas's stomach. No! Why? That's so excessive! I admit I don't know why she cut up the stomach. It's a little bit too much. Well, murder is too much. <laughs> that, that too far, everything, everything else, was but too that's far. too far. <laughs> anyway, it continues to get worse. We'll just name this episode, It Got Worse. <laughs> and then it was worse. It's either going to be It Got Worse or She Didn't Have To, but, but she, she did. did. Webster then put the dismembered body parts into a laundry copper, which was basically an open copper laundry machine that just boiled water and whitened clothes. She filled it with water and proceeded to boil Mrs. Thomas's body parts to prevent them from identification. This was before DNA, so I don't really understand why she did it. I mean, did Mrs. Thomas have any sick tattoos? Yes, a Victorian retired school teacher had the sickest sleeves you've ever seen. <laughs> they were regrettable tribal tattoos that she got in college, you know? <laughs> oh, hell yeah. Yeah, we all have that one regrettable tattoo from college. <laughs> She reportedly visited a pub while waiting for Mrs. Thomas's remains to boil. Fair. Murder makes you thirsty. Kit, no. <laughs> After pawning Mrs. Thomas's gold false teeth, 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 our D&D pocket. No, we don't have one. Don't have... Yet. <laughs> Yet. After pawning Mrs. Thomas's false gold teeth for six shillings, she treated herself to a drink. Despite the horrible smell, the neighbors did not see anything unusual that day. Hey, remember when you said this would gross me out? You were right. Good, but don't worry. There's more. (laughs) It's time for Let's Learn Something New. 
In this week's episode, we're going to talk about what happens when you boil a body. Hey. No thanks. Bye. I gotta go. This is in my Google search history. We're going to talk about it. <laughs> so if someone is being boiled, they are literally being burnt and cooked the same way that you might boil or poach meat. Technically, human bodies are just meat suits. Gee, thanks, Katie. As you burn, your entire body will begin to change color, turning bright red before blistering and swelling. This happens because your body, sensing that something is wrong, sends more blood to the surface to the skin to combat the burning and pain. The skin may also turn leathery or harden and begin to peel back. After your outer body cooks, the heat will begin to cook your insides. The fluids surrounding your organs will begin to rise in temperature until that fluid is boiled as well. This literally cooks your stomach, liver, heart, kidneys, and intestines in your own juices on the inside. Apparently, human flesh has a very specific smell when it's cooking. Some individuals, I don't know who, that's <laughs> you know, terrifying, <laughs> have the unpleasant pleasure of smelling it and described it as sweet or musky odor. Next time, think twice before getting into that hot tub. I've said it before and I will say it again. Thanks. I hate it. This has been Let's Learn Something New. And now, back to our regularly scheduled crime talk. After completing the dreadful deed, Webster then put most of the body in a wooden box in a black bag, but was unable to fit the head or one foot. She threw the foot into a rubbish heap, and I will talk about the head later. I'd prefer if you didn't. Webster spent the next few days living and cleaning the house. Wait, can I just say that I love that she uh, spent more time cleaning after <laughs> her boss was dead than when she did when she was employed? Why don't you just do your job right? <laughs> then all this would have job. been avoided. <laughs> On March 4th, Webster wore her late employer's clothing and jewelry and she took the bag with her to the home of a former neighbor and acquaintance, Henry Porter. She took the body parts with her to a dude's house. Okay, so I'm guessing that because the body parts were boiled, they didn't smell as bad. But, like, the Victorian era was very smelly already. <laughs> Am I wrong? <laughs> You're not. <laughs> According to Porter, Webster stated that since she last saw him, she turned herself around and married a rich man and was now Kate Thomas. She was recently widowed and had been left a house in Richmond by a late aunt. So she pretty much took Mrs. Thomas's identity? Oh, yeah, yeah. She asked Porter if he knew anyone that she could sell her old furniture to. He suggested a man named John Church, who was looking for furniture for his pub, The Rising Sun. To thank him, she invited Henry and his 16-year-old son, Robert, for a drink at a pub called the Oxford and Cambridge Arms. This is before drinking laws, <laughs> by the way. So this pub she recommended was located in Barnes, southwest of London, near the River Thames, and the Hammersmith Bridge. Sometime on the way to the pub, Webster <laughs> disposed the black bag on the bridge by throwing it into the river, never to be seen again. <laughs> she straight up yeeted a dead body into the river. She straight up yeeted parts of a dead body into <laughs> the river. My mistake. Wouldn't they be like, hey, weren't you carrying a purse? No, 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 no. Let's go get some drinks, lads. Yeah. <laughs> Ignore that. Don't worry about it. When I was in London, my family and I walked past the River Thames, and I stopped my mom to take a picture of me throwing my fanny pack into the water to pose for a picture just for this podcast. Katie. Yes. Talk about some some horrible things on this podcast. Mm. Gruesome crime, mm -hmm. murder, mm -hmm. 
boiling body parts. Oh, of course. And yeeting them into a river. Mm-hmm. But the most horrendous crime of all is that you were wearing a fanny pack. Oh, I'm sorry, but us travelers wear fanny packs because it's convenient, and who would want to rob someone with such atrocious fashion sense? They don't even want to be seen with you, so they won't rob you. Exactly. <laughs> Look who's stupid now, huh? <laughs> they walk up, I am disgusted, I am revolted, I dedicated my life to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and this is the thanks I get. We love Vines here. We support Vine, not TikTok. Bring down TikTok. I support TikTok. Oof. Leave a comment below if you support Vine or TikTok. I support both. Anyway, getting back to getting away with murder, Webster asked Robert to carry the box back at her house to the bridge. She explained that she was waiting for her friend to pick it up at that location. Once they were there, She thanked Robert and told him that he should start to head home without her. And once Robert turned around a corner after leaving Webster at the bridge, he heard a faint splash. Webster was able to catch up with him and said that the friend came and got the box. Robert later reported how heavy the box was. Life lessons, kids. Never transport suspicious boxes for other people. Even if it is an old family friend, you don't know who you can trust. They might be handing you boiled body parts. Life lessons from sex appeal, woman on trial. (laughs) The following day, the box was found washed up next to the river bank, about a mile away from the bridge. The police were immediately notified. Around the same time, authorities found the missing foot in the dumpster. So, according to legend, Webster tried to sell some jars of her best drippings or lard to neighbors and patrons of her favorite pub. This lard was said to be the reduced fat of Mrs. Thomas. A few young boys claimed that they ate two bowlfuls. Please, 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 please don't let that be true. Luckily, many historians stated that there was no evidence supporting the statement. I think that it was a rumor made up during the trial because of all the hatred towards Webster. We will talk about that hatred later in more detail. I mean, hey, if you want to make people hate someone, convince them that they fed a person's boiled remains to some kids. Also, if it wasn't true, why would anyone say they unintentionally ate a person? Weird flex, but okay. Webster continued to living there, posing as the late Mrs. Thomas. On March 9th, a week after the murder, she's been there for a week. I just Just chilling. Straight up chilling. She reached an agreement with John Church to pay him 68 pounds, about $1,870 in today's money, with an interim payment of 18 pounds in advance, which is $400, possibly? Around. Around, yeah. That was a sketchy website that I was trying to do the math on, but that's <laughs> fine. Some sources said that Webster and Church had an intimate relationship until the official transaction, and some say it was strictly professional. On March 18th, Church and his associate came to collect the furniture. That day, the next-door neighbor, Miss Ives, grew very suspicious of the activities at her neighbor's house, especially due to the fact that she hasn't seen Mrs. Thomas in the last two weeks. When seeing Mrs. Thomas's furniture being removed, she went outside and asked Church and his associate what they were doing and demanded to talk to Mrs. Thomas. Church, still believing Webster was the real Mrs. Thomas, called her over to talk to Miss Ives. Only Miss Ives knew that Webster was really Mrs. Thomas's maid and kept asking her where Mrs. Thomas was. 
This obviously confused Church because to him, Miss Ives kept on asking Mrs. Thomas where Mrs. Thomas was. She repeatedly asked Webster where Mrs. Thomas was, and Webster kept saying that she didn't know. Eventually, Church realized that Webster was not the real Mrs. Thomas and called the police. Knowing the jig was up, Webster managed to slip out the back door and fled to Ireland with her four-year-old son. When police arrived, they found the house quiet. While looking around the kitchen, everything seemed clean at first. However, after inspecting the copper, they discovered some bloodstains, burned finger bones, and fatty remains left behind. Remember, Webster was a terrible maid. <laughs> that was her downfall. <laughs> the police were able to connect Webster because they were able to show Robert the box and its contents for him to confirm that it was the box that he helped carry. Yep, I believe they showed this poor boy the mutilated body parts that he unknowingly helped dispose of. I hate it, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. How did the police track her once she fled the country? Well, luckily for the police, Webster had accidentally left a letter containing her old home address in Ireland. On March 28th, the Royal Irish Constabulary and Scotland Yard worked together and arrested Webster at her uncle's house, still wearing Mrs. Thomas's clothes and jewelry. Teamwork makes the dream work. Uh, yay! <laughs> now, Victorians found murder endlessly fascinating. The market for murder during this period was prominent in the number of plays, puppet shows, waxworks exhibits, ballets, and books inspired by homicide cases. I'm sorry, murder puppet shows? Murder puppet shows. <laughs> My favorite genre. So due to the interest in murder and the advancements of media, news of the grisly murder spread like wildfire. Not only did the people of Ireland and England hear about the crime, but it also reached surrounding countries like France and Germany. In fact, the future King of Sweden, Crown Prince Gustav V, went to England and watched one of the six days of Webster's trial. Oh yeah, her trial went on for six days. Oof. We'll talk about that later. As Webster traveled back to England to face trial, crowds gathered around and jeered at her cart at almost every station on the way. Sadly, Webster's family did not want to take in her son, so the authorities had to send him to industrial school. This kid must have been traumatized. His mother's taken away, and then he probably understood on some level that she murdered someone. And then I'm willing to bet that the industrial school didn't provide the counseling he definitely needed. A bad transition from childhood trauma, but a uh, fun fact... <laughs> Before she had even gone on trial, Madame Tussauds Wax Museum created a wax figure of Webster and put it on display for those who wished to see Richmond's murderess in the Chamber of Horrors. Before she's even convicted, she yikes. had a lot of evidence against yeah. her, to be fair. Many people traveled to the scene of the crime, wanting to see if there was still any blood spatter or bones left to take as souvenirs. Because humans are garbage. This is kind of disturbing since, you know, somebody recently died there. But anyway, it's called Dark Tourism. There is a whole show on Netflix about dark tourism. And honestly, I'm definitely that kind of person. Listen, I would love to visit the French catacombs one day. Or like, you know, the Lizzie Borden house. Or someplace macabre. But I wouldn't go there hoping for a t-shirt right after someone gruesomely died there. Yeah, no, that's fair. Give, give it a little while. Yeah. And now we arrive at the trial. Kit, can you please read the newspaper quote? 
The Times reported that Webster's first appearance at Richmond Magistrates Court was greeted by, quote, an immense crowd around the building and very great excitement prevailed. And then according to the Manchester Guardian, the pretrial headings were attended by, quote, many privileged and curious persons, including not a few ladies, Women don't like gross murder. Why are they here? She doesn't even go here. (laughs) (laughs) On trial, Webster was charged with the murder of Julie Martha Thomas. She was defended by Warren Slay. Prosecution was led by Sir Harnage Grifford. And the case was presided over by Justice Demon. Nope. Denman. Demon. Demon. Don't say that. Demon. (laughs) And the case was presided over by Justice Demon. Before the trial, Webster pleaded not guilty and even tried to pin the murder on Church and Porter. However, both men were cleared of any involvement with the murder. Okay, so I know that this is a horrible tragedy and all that, but I mean, it's kind of hilarious. Ma'am, we have witnesses stating you were impersonating the victim. Nah, man, wasn't me. You are literally wearing Mrs. Thomas's clothes right now. Nah, she let me... Borrow it. Anyway, Porter and Church were with me, so they did it. So they were with you. Nah. (laughs) No. What? (laughs) Come on. During the trial, Webster tried to defend herself by stating that she was a fragile woman and a loving mother to her son and could not have been capable of murder. She attempted to make the jury sympathize with her by directing the attention to Strong, the possible baby daddy of her child, blaming him for leaving her. Kit, can you please read the quote? She says, I formed an intimate acquaintance with one who should have protected me and was led away by evil associates and bad companions. So she tried to play on the time's social norms and values, such as the man needed to guide the woman, how women are weak, how they need to love and protect the child, which that part is very important to these. But it's like... Yeah, she can't make her own decisions. It's her husband's fault or lack thereof. However, due to Webster having more interactions with the law than her own son, the court did not believe her pleads. That's... that's fair. Over the course of six days, the court heard a number of witnesses, such as John Church, Miss Ives, Henry Porter, and his son... I want to say Harry Potter. (laughs) (laughs) Piecing together the story of how Thomas died... One of the witnesses was a bonnet maker named Maria Dernan. She told the court that Webster had visited her shop a week before the murder. In the store, Webster said that she was going to Birmingham to sell some jewelry in a house that her aunt left her. Gifford stated to the jury that this comment was a sign that Webster had premeditated the murder rather than accidentally pushing Mrs. Thomas down the stairs. Yep, just keep digging your own grave there, girl. Oh, we're not done yet, my dude. If you think this case could not get any more insane think again remember we're gonna call this it got worse (laughs) and then it got worse then it got worse after a long six days of trial the jury reached a verdict in little over an hour kate webster was found guilty obviously and was to be executed by hanging in wandsworth prison justice demon asked webster if there was any reason why sentence of death should not be passed upon her in her response she stated that she was pregnant Wait, 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 what? <laughs> wait, wait, so you said earlier that Church and her might have had an intimate relationship, so is he the father? Did she know that she was gonna get caught and then, you know? Do you want to read the next few quotes? Oh, sure. 
The Law Times reported that upon this, a scene of uncertainty, if not confusion, ensued, certainly not altogether in harmony with the solemnity of the occasion. The judge commented that after 32 years in the profession, he was never at an inquiry of this sort. Yeah, so everyone pretty much lost their minds. Uh, yeah. The court had to call upon a jury of matrons, a special jury in English common law used to see whether a party to a legal action was pregnant. It's weird that they have this specific jury, but... Right, how often was this happening? I don't know. They had to have 12 women sworn in, along with a surgeon, and brought Webster to a private room for examination. After a long hour of waiting in the courtroom, the matrons came out of the room. They said that they could not find any physical evidence proving that she was pregnant. It was, in fact, another lie she had made up to avoid the death penalty. It wasn't until the eve of her execution that Webster had finally came clean and admitted her guilt. She gave the authorities a step-by-step account of her actions during and after the murder. On July 29th, Kate Webster was hanged at Wandsworth Prison at 9 in the morning. There was a large crowd of people waiting outside of the prison gates, and everyone cheered when they saw a black flag raised over the prison walls, signifying that she was dead. Webster's body was buried in an unmarked grave in one of the prison's exercise yards. Okay, why would you exercise in a graveyard? Yeah, like... Hmm, where do we, uh, where do we put the body? I know, where people are just, uh, doing laps. Oh, wow, Mary Jane died the other day. Anyway, can you spot me? (laughs) Thanks, bro. For over a century, authorities never found out what happened to Mrs. Thomas's head, and her murder was almost forgotten in time. However, in October of 2010, 131 years after the murder, Planet Earth star Sir David Attenborough was excavating the yard of his home situated between the former Mayfield Cottages and the Hole in Wall pub. Less than a hundred yards away from where Mrs. Thomas was murdered, a groundsman found a dark circular object in the ground. As he looked closer, it turned out to be a human skull. What? I know, I know, but anyway, let's just let's just keep going. Read this, please. <laughs> Freeman's Journal and the Daily Commercial Advertiser of Dublin noted that this crime was called, quote, one of the most sensational and awful chapters in the annals of human wickedness, had resulted in the press teeming with descriptions and details of the ghastly horrors of that crime. So we can both confirm that Webster was 100% guilty, right? Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. However, the public hated her not only because she committed this heinous act, but also because she did not fit the feminine Victorian era standards. Weird thing to be mad about. She killed someone. I feel like we should be more concerned about that. Right, not that she wasn't following social norms. Anyway, yeah. The newspapers left on this, portraying the heavily built and tall Webster anything but feminine. Writer Elliot O'Donnell described her as not merely savage, savage and shocking but the grimmest of grim personalities, a character so uniquely sinister and barbaric as to be hardly human. The newspapers described her as gaunt, repellent, and trampish-looking. However, the reporter for the Penny Illustrated Paper and Illustrated Times commented that she was not so ill-favored as she has been described. She ate. (laughs) (laughs) I went to start This is something that we kind of still see today, like, 
criminals, but also I find like a lot of female politicians, even if, yeah, her politics are bad, but people will criticize based on her appearance. Like, mm -hmm. no, let's focus on the actual bad stuff, not that you don't find her attractive. Right. Many Victorians didn't like that Webster disobeyed the expected norms of femininity standards of the Victorian era. Ideals at the time were that women should be kind, quiet, passive, and physically weak at most. Webster was the complete opposite and therefore was described in negative ways due to her lack of femininity. Like I said earlier, I believe that the story of her trying to sell people fat was allied, made up to further paint the picture of her being a monster. She knew that she lacked femininity, which is why at her trial, Webster tried to make herself seem more feminine by talking about the love of her son, because that's what people expect a good woman to do. Not a good mother, a good woman. When talking about the abandonment of her son's biological father, Webster played on the belief that women's moral sense should be directed by a man, as well as the belief that men who have sexual relationships with a woman should also follow the social norms by staying with the mother and the child. Now, for all we know, she tried to be a good mother and probably did visit her son as much as she could. She did bring him to Ireland with her, which is kind of the bare minimum of what yeah, mom should I mean, do. I guess it's not saying much about how good of a mother, like, if you leave the country, she brought her son with her. Another factor that contributed to the English public hating her was the fact that she was Irish. Due to the Great Famine of 1845 to 1849, Many Irish people fled to neighboring countries or America to start a new life. However, the English did not like the new immigrants and showed great prejudice towards them. Gee! Wow. Wow. I'm glad that doesn't exist anymore. Mm. The fact that she was an Irish immigrant was a significant factor in the widespread negative attitudes towards her. Irish individuals had to live in slums that were rough, overcrowded, and in terrible condition. Children in these slums were generally left to fend for themselves, where they would scavenge for food. Irish immigrants were stereotyped with crime and alcohol, which described Webster perfectly. There's a quote that stated, In terms of public and judicial perceptions, it was doubtless easier to accept Webster as both thief and murderer because she was Irish. All right, Kit, it's finally time. What are your final thoughts on the case of good old Kate Webster? <clears throat> Uh... Yeah, that sums it up. <laughs> the whole thing is just bonkers from start to finish. And I really can't believe there's not enough people talking about this case. I agree that it's kind of shocking that more people don't talk about this. But, um, hey, how about you don't ever tell me about boiling bodies ever again, ever? No promises. I hate that. And, um, what's the lesson of the day? Don't murder your employer. You need those references. You need them references. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Sex Appeal. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you always know when to come back for more cases of Women on Trial. Sex Appeal Women on Trial was brought to you by us, Kit Elliott and Katie Clark. Music is Dark Tranquility by Anno Domini Beats. Costello from MC Design Photography for creating our logo. You can find her on Facebook and Instagram under mcdesign underscore photography. Remember to leave a five-star rating and review us on iTunes. And follow us on Instagram at sexappealpodcast and Twitter at sexappealpod. You can also visit our website sexappealpodcast.weebly.com for updates and additional content, including episodes.
descriptions, pictures, links, and sources. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, please email us at sexappealpod at gmail.com. Thank you.